Uh, Jesus, we just, we, we praise you. We praise you, Lord, because in the middle of a world where there is just so much uh, darkness and there, there is so much hopelessness, Lord, we're here today and, and we are proclaiming the good news. We are proclaiming hope. We are proclaiming, Lord, that you are God above all and, uh, and that you are the one who made the heavens and the earth and you're the one who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who has rescued us. Lord, you're amazing, and we love you, and we pray that you'd speak to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week, we were in Acts chapter 3, where we were in this miraculous healing of a man who had been born uh, lame, and uh, he was healed at the temple courts by, uh, or through Peter and John, uh, by the name of Jesus. And, and so he's healed, and it's this incredible thing. And and if I didn't say it clearly enough last week, let me say it really clearly this week, that when we look at a story like that, it doesn't mean that anyone who has enough faith will experience physical healing from whatever they're dealing with, right? Because even when God does work a miracle, that person who is healed is still going to succumb to something else down, down the road. God doesn't always heal. Sometimes he does in this life, in this world, according to his sovereign purposes. But, but those healings are a, a sign, like we said last week, of, of the kingdom of God that is broken into the present, that is already kind of infiltrating this present age full of, of death and decay. And it's a promise. Those miracles are a promise of what will one day be the case for all who trust in Jesus. That this healing, this restoration, full and total restoration will be true across the board. So it's, it's a sign, it's, it's a promise. And, and so another way of saying that, as we've said a few times, is that the miracle is not the point. The point is who the miracle points to. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 3, where there's this healing and people, people hear about it. They hear that this man, who they have seen all the time in front of the temple, is standing, jumping, walking, dancing. Well, maybe if he was a Baptist, he wouldn't have been dancing. But, but at least maybe jumping a little bit. And they're astounded, and so they run. They run to the temple, because they've got to see this for themselves. This is like um, this is like at the beginning of the pandemic. If you ever heard that Costco had toilet paper in stock, you know you hear that news. You're, Whoa, we got to get there. Six a.m. Line up outside the doors because you got to get in on this. That's what the crowds in Jerusalem are thinking. We got to get in on this. We got to hear. We got to see for ourselves. And and so Peter takes this opportunity. He's got a captive audience, and he says, "This this is this is who did it. This is what it's all about." Now, before we get to that, I just want to sit with this point just a little bit longer. Because um, for, for a lot of people, the experience or the miracle or whatever is the point. You know, I, I was just watching some worship songs on YouTube today, and one, one very well-known church shows up, and it's like, join our worship experience. That's, that's kind of the language. The idea for some people is that you go to church on a Sunday to get an experience, to, to, to feel a certain way. And, and people sometimes become Christians because they hope for a miracle, that Jesus will do a miracle in their lives right now. And, and, and sometimes he does again, but that's the whole, for some people that's the point. And that's understandable because in our culture, experience is a really, really, really big deal. Actually, you could say that the most powerful currency of truth in our culture is lived experience. And if you haven't experienced something, then you really can't talk about it. 
So just to use a super controversial example, because I'm two minutes into the sermon, um, men are told you really can't talk about abortion because you haven't been pregnant, and so therefore you have no right to speak to this. Which is a bit of a bizarre uh, way of thinking if you push it to the extreme, because if you're a parent, it means you probably shouldn't tell your kids not to do drugs unless you yourself have actually experienced them firsthand. And I don't think many of us would, would say that. So there, there's, you know, there's limitations, real limitations, to this way of, of thinking. Now, experience can be a gift. It can be a good thing. And, and as Christians in our faith, for those of us who follow Jesus, we want it to be tangible. We want it to impact us. But I think about it a bit like marriage. If you think that marriage, the whole point of marriage, is to make you feel amazing all the time, <laughs> you've been married for one month, uh, if that's what you think. <laughs> but if you think it's to make you feel amazing all the time, and to give you great memories, that's the foundation. That's really, really faulty of a foundation. It's not going to last. Your, your marriage is a commitment to love another person through thick and thin, a committed relationship. And the memories and the experiences strengthen that. Those are good things uh, to help you endure the proverbial deserts which you inevitably come across. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, the point is a committed relationship with Jesus through thick and thin. And some of these experiences, miracles, and so on help build our faith, help strengthen us, help point us, but they're not the goal or the point in and of themselves. And Peter gets that, which is, is, is why he right away points the crowds to Christ. So here we are, Acts chapter 3. We're going to start with verses 11 to 16. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. They came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? We're like, really, Peter? I mean, (laughs) it's understandable. But why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. So right away, Peter says, look, it's not us. We're not the star of the show. Jesus is. If you've got bouquets of flowers to throw, throw them at his feet, not at ours. And then, uh, and then he makes a provocative statement. He gives Jesus a title. He says that Jesus is the author of life, which is a big-time title, isn't it? Author of life. If you're a, a Jew in the first century, there's only, one, there's only one who should have that title, right? I mean, the author of life. From a New Testament perspective, this is true of Jesus in a couple of ways. So one thing is, is that we get this claim in the New Testament that this, this man, Jesus, who walked the earth for a few decades, a couple thousand years ago, was instrumental in creation itself, that he had an existence in eternity past. 
So John, uh, one of the disciples right here, he says at the beginning of his gospel that in the beginning was the Word, his title for Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And it's not just John. Paul in Colossians says that in Jesus all things were created. All things have been created through Him and for Him. So (laughs) the Father creates all things through the Son. Now how does this work metaphysically? Peter and John didn't have enough parchments to tell us that. But the point is, if you're living, if you're breathing today, you owe your existence to Jesus, the author of life. And it's also true, this title, because Jesus in his resurrection is the originator, the inventor of a whole new way of life. In the same passage in Colossians, a couple verses later, Paul says that Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And John in Revelation says the same thing, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the the first one who has defeated death, who has come through it on the other side in a resurrection body. And the promise of the Bible is that all who trust in Jesus will be resurrected in the same way, that we we will be raised in new bodies just as Jesus was. And so so Jesus is the author of resurrection life. This is why in John chapter 11, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a math equation. And I haven't done math since grade 12, so I'm a little bit rusty. I wasn't even very good at it back then. But here it is. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Are you ready for this? Jesus equals life. There it is. That's the math equation. Nailed it. Jesus equals life. He is life. He's all about life. You want to know what life is about? Go to Jesus. He's the author of it, the inventor of it, the sustainer of it. You want to, you want to know what abundant life is, what it means to live as God created you to live? Go to Jesus. Which, by the way, would suggest that that's what the church is supposed to be all about too. That the church is supposed to be all about life. And so if this ever gets like dry and stale and, and, and you know, like we're going to talk about things sometimes about how some things lead to death. We're not going to be hunky-dory about everything. But, but if this isn't about life, if our message is not one about life, abundant life, then something has gone wrong. Because that's what Jesus is all about. Amen. But Peter says something crazy happened in the first century. He says that they, the the crowds in Jerusalem, disowned the author of life. That, That they rejected him. They discarded him. They killed him. And it gets even crazier than that. Peter says, not only did you kill him, but you exchanged his life for that of a murderer which if you're not familiar with the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, is actually literally what happened. Pilate, the Roman governor, had this custom at the Passover of releasing a prisoner to the Jewish people. And, uh, and he had examined Jesus, and he couldn't find anything wrong with, with him. He couldn't understand, why should I punish this man? He is innocent, Peter says, the holy and righteous one. And, uh, and the crowds, instead, at the behest of their leaders, cheered for the release of Barabbas, 
Barabbas was actually a murderer. He, he was actually truly guilty and they wanted him among them instead of the author of life. Which on the one hand is an incredible portrayal of the gospel, is it not? That Jesus swaps his life with a guilty man so that the guilty man can go free and he pays the price? Are we not all in that picture? That we are, we are guilty and yet Jesus at the cross has paid the price for us, the innocent one, so that we can be set free despite being guilty? That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. On the other hand, it's a vivid portrayal of, of the human condition. That this is what we do. This is what we do over and over and over again whenever we choose sin. Whenever we choose evil. We are, we are choosing death over life. We are choosing a murderer over the author of life. Whenever we give in to greed and to lust and to violence and to hatred, whenever we worship false gods, whenever we, we exalt ourselves and speak falsehoods, we are choosing death over life. I was thinking about this recently in the, in the lead up to Halloween and just advance warning here, I'm about to sound like a grumpy old man. So, you know, I'm pretty grumpy and I'm pretty old. So it makes sense. But uh, I, I, I will confess, I don't really get Halloween. We, uh, we kind of wrestle with it every year and we end up taking our kids trick-or-treating and, and they dress up. I mean, Zachary wanted to dress up as an angel this year. So it's like, all right, go ahead, knock yourself out, kid, you know? Um, and, and, and it's one of the nights that we connect most with our neighbors, you know, walking around with them. And, and so that's great. I'm really, I'm really thankful for that. But I don't, I don't get the, um, the decorating of, of houses. I, I took one picture of a house I saw. The decorating of houses with, with demons and ghosts and ghouls and, and morbid skeletons and bloody gravestones and, and severed limbs just lying around on the yard. In our complex, you know, those, those little green figurines that tell you to go slow and it's a little kid playing with his dog. So he puts his mask on and a devil's pitchfork. And I'm like, like, why? Why? You know, and last Sunday we're doing our, our uh, evening service upstairs and it's like, like the fireworks in Myrtle Park. It makes it sound like it's the 4th of July, you know, in the United States. And I'm like, like what, are, what are we celebrating here? Like, what, like, really, what are we celebrating? And I get that for some people it's like somehow fun, but it's this like kid-centric holiday where we literally glorify evil, and I just don't get it. I mean, I kind of do, because this is the human condition, but it confuses me, you know? And then, and then I was thinking about this too, because our principal recently sent an email just kind of saying, hey, a lot of, uh, we've heard that some young elementary school kids are, are watching Squid Game. This Netflix, Netflix uh, hit show, which I haven't seen it, but is apparently full of, of scenes of, of brutal violence and sex. And, and you've got young elementary school students watching this. And, and this is going to be a bit of a detour. Can, but can I just say to you, parents of kids, do everything you can to keep your kids away from screens as much as you possibly can. I uh, saw a study this past week that said that before the pandemic, I think this was adolescence, but they were spending four hours a day on screens. And that wasn't, that wasn't uh, schoolwork. This is like totally like outside of school, four hours. And since the pandemic, it's doubled. It's now eight hours, eight hours of watching this, this stuff, this, 
this garbage. And, and not only just, just keep your kids away from ski or screens, but be really aware of what your kids are, are watching. It's not like the good old days, there I go again, uh, where, where you, you, if you wanted to watch the sketchy stuff, you had to stay up till 11 or 12 and watch on the big family TV in the living room. It's all right there for anyone at any time on any device if they have one of these streaming things. This is a big deal. Like if you've got young kids, just, just, just delay that as much as possible. Keep it away from them. If you've got older kids that are already hooked, do everything you can to mitigate it and to try to, to, try to pull back from it. There's Parenting 101 from Pastor Craig. Okay, I'm done now. This is... <laughs> It's, this is a huge, like we got a generation that's just getting wrecked by this stuff. And if you have one of those streaming platforms or like five or six of them, you know that so much of the content on those is just pure and utter filth. It's, it's a glorification of sexual immorality in all its kinds. It's a glorification of violence. It's a glorification of, of substance abuse, whatever. And then why? Why are those, those platforms so full of that stuff? It's because people actually want to watch it. It's because people actually have an appetite for it. And so they produce it because people want it. Why? See, we, I find it ironic because I think we live in a culture that sees itself as very virtuous in a lot of ways. You know, we progressives in the Western world, we've, we've got the corner on morality and, and virtue and all those other people around us just need to learn from us because we've, we've, got, we've got the corner on this. Don't believe it for a second. Sin infects everyone. It infects every, every political position, every inclination, conservative to liberal. It infects every generation from Gen Z to boomers. It, sin infects everyone. And everything. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. It does. We choose over and over and over again. We choose death over life. We do it in the 21st century. We did it in the first century when people literally asked for a murderer instead of the author of life. All right, rant over. Let's keep going. Um, here's what Peter goes on to next. Verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So Peter, right from the start, gives them some relief, right? He says, look, you made that decision, but you made it in ignorance. And God knew that you would make that decision. He kind of knows you, you know, he kind of made you. So he knows what kinds of things you're going to do. And it was actually part of his plan all along that he would take the evil and sin of humanity and that he would turn it and that he would work it for redemption, that he would do something with that to launch the greatest rescue operation the world has ever seen. 
And what was true in the first century, just like the condition of the human heart is the same throughout the ages, so is God's purposes to take our choices and turn them and redeem them and bring about His rescue, His salvation. There was and there is a way out of this. A way out of this human inclination, obsession with choosing death over evil. There's a way out of this. And Peter says it boils down to repentance. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what repentance means. It means fundamentally a change in direction, a 180, a change in thinking, and particularly a change in thinking about Jesus. A change in thinking that Jesus was even just a good man or, you know, somebody who deserved to die or whatever to believing what God says about Jesus, what God has proclaimed about Jesus through the resurrection, that Jesus is Lord that he is Lord over all. Repentance means going, okay, Jesus is Lord. I believe God and I'm submitting my life to him as my Lord. Now, why would you do that? Especially today, you're sitting here 2,000 years later. Why would you give your life to a man who died 2000, who apparently died and rose again 2,000 years ago? Why would you give your life to him as your Lord? Well, Peter, Peter talks about well, he talks about a bunch of things, but I want to look at three phrases especially that he uses to say this is, what, this is why Jesus is worthy of your worship. This is why you should give your life to him. First of all, Peter talks about, about how Jesus wipes away, wipes out our sins. Now, some of you have experienced this. We've talked about it recently where you had some kind of burden that just like weighed down on you. It was oppressive. And, and then you found release from it. You found freedom. I have, a, I have a bit of a strange story in this regard, a little illustration. And I think I've shared it before, like a, a long time ago. But uh, when, I was, when I was in Bible college, and really any time I've been in school, my grades were a really, really big deal to me. Um, they, they helped shape and form my, my sense of identity. You know, it, it, it fed into my pride. It made me feel like this, this is a solid, concrete marker of who I am, is this grade point average. And I, I, I wasn't going to some uber-competitive Ivy League school. This was a Bible college in rural Manitoba. Nobody cared. I cared. That was, that was the only person who cared about this. Uh, but I, I, I did. And so there's one night, um, I'm working on like a term paper, big paper for this class. And uh, it's due that evening, and I'm just shoveling words together. Because I can do this, right? I know how to get the grade that I want to get. And so I'm putting this together, and all of a sudden I stop. And I go, what am I, what am I doing here? Like I'm paying all this tuition. I'm, I'm going to Bible college, but I'm just feeding my ego. You know, I'm just trying to prop up my GPA so that I feel better about myself. This is ridiculous. And so I start writing this in the paper for four to five pages. I just write this confessional and I tell the professor, professor, I'm giving up my A for this class. I'm laying it down. I'm killing my GPA. I'm sacrificing it because I need to, I need to deal with this. I need to be set free from the bondage of my GPA. And so, so give me an F professor. That's why I said, I, I printed that out and I handed it in. And I went outside and I laid down on the soccer field and I felt so free. I just laid there and it was just like this, the oppression of needing to keep this up. This prideful obsession was just gone. And then I found out a few weeks later that the professor gave me an A on the paper anyways because he was so touched by it and he ruined the whole thing. (laughs) 
But for a few weeks, man, I was free. It was so good. <laughs> I didn't try it again either. I could have maybe. But, um, but it's, it's, that, it's that, that thing. Like, like our sins are like that. You know, they're this like oppressive, there's this oppressive presence that, that keep us from moving forward and they impact our relationships and, and they weigh us down. They're, they're a burden and we can't get rid of them. We can't remove them. But Jesus can. He can remove that burden, that oppression of the bad decisions we have made in the past. Paul uses the same Greek word in Colossians 2 where he says that Jesus took away the legal charge of indebtedness that stood against us. He nailed it to the cross. It's, it's like, you know, all our sins are like this, it's like this permanent record and people, and, and, and it's just read out. Like, here are all the ways in which you've messed up, you failed, you, you hurt yourself and others, and you just hear it read and you just kind of shrink lower and lower and lower. And Jesus takes it and says, I'll, I'll deal with this. And he nails it to the cross. He takes it to the grave with him. And you're set free, wiped out, sins wiped out. And isn't that good news in a world where 10-year-old deleted tweets can destroy your career and people are obsessed with holding grudges and bitterness? That Jesus, through faith in him, Jesus has removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. He's wiped them out. Isn't that good news? Amen. Oh, guys, it gets better. It gets better. It's, it's not just, you guys are really becoming responsive. You know, I, really, I just want to say, I really see growth in you guys. It's just, it's just really encouraging to see. It gets better. Not only does Jesus wipe out our sins, but Peter says that through faith in the Messiah, times of refreshing will come. And by the way, these first two things, the, the, the wiping out of sins and, and the refreshment, I think those are things we... You know, those are things for the present time, for life now, that we experience refreshing. I love that word. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Uh, the basic meaning is to cool off by, by blowing. It's like you were in, a, in an atmosphere, in a climate, and then something happens to make you go, ah. Now, I don't know if you remember, but apparently there was once a season called summer. Uh, it was when I think the yellow ball in the sky showed its, showed its face sometimes. And, uh, and there was this heat dome. Remember the heat dome back in June and July? Heat like we had never experienced before in this city. Now we've got a, we've got a pool in our complex. Um, and my kids love it. They would go in there every day if, uh, if they could. Even if it's 15 degree, degrees out and raining, they want to be in the pool. And, uh, and I am very different from them. I am a hardcore fair weather swimmer. Uh, when we're in the Okanagan in the summer, it's got to be 35 degrees and I have to be coming out of a strenuous tennis match to want to jump in the lake. So that's me. So my kids, every time we go to the pool, they beg me for like 30 minutes in the cutest way possible to jump in with them. And I resist and then 30 minutes later, I'm tired of it. And so I just jump in and immediately regret it because I hate cold water. But during the heat dome, I didn't need to be convinced. I was the first one in that pool. I jumped in there and it was so refreshing. It was incredible. See, Jesus, through faith in him, we receive that refreshment in a world 
where so much goes in one way and, it, and, it's, and it's ways that lead to discouragement and division and, and darkness and hopelessness. Jesus brings refreshment. He's a change of pace. He brings life. He cools us off. You know what I mean? And there's so many manifestations of it, so many ways that he does that. But, but one way, for example, is that in a world where we always have to prove ourselves, where we always have to show that we're worthy of being loved, where we feel this pressure and this anxiety that if I mess up, I'm gonna, this person will see who I really am and leave me. The love of God comes to us when we're at our lowest point when we have nothing lovable about us, when there's nothing that we could possibly do. Paul says in Ephesians that when we were dead in our transgressions, dead, like nothing, nothing appealing, God loved us, poured out his love for us in Jesus. And so you are saved by grace, not by works. You're saved by grace, not because of anything you have done, I was just listening to a song this morning where uh, he goes, I've never been more loved than I am right now because God's love is constant. It doesn't fail. It never ends. Isn't that refreshing? In a world where we're constantly working and striving and proving ourselves, the love of God in Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's refreshing. And then finally, Peter talks about the future. And he says that God will send the Messiah. And and clearly, Peter believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's already come. This is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. And that when that happens, when Christ returns, this will be the signal that God is going to restore all things. This is going to come as a shock to you, but things in the world are not as they should be. (gasps) It's true. Things are broken. And maybe a lot of Canadians for years could kind of convince themselves, you know, things are pretty good, actually. I think the last couple of years have shattered that illusion, don't you? There's this widespread sense things are not as they should be. And the Bible tells us, yes, that's true. Going back to the Garden of Eden, sin has infected creation and and things are are broken. And we still see glimpses of grace and beauty, right? So we're talking about the kingdom has come not in its fullness, but it has come. So we see glimpses of God's beauty and his goodness and truth, but things aren't as they should be. And the promise of the scriptures, and I know I've talked about this before, and and some of you maybe are tired of me saying it, but our destiny, our hope, our future is not in some disembodied world above the clouds where we're spiritual angel babies flying around with harps and bows and arrows. That's not where we're going. Our, Our hope, our future destiny is a new heaven and a new earth in new resurrected bodies where the world is as it is meant to be. Here's what uh, Peter says in, in his letter, and he clearly understands that a lot of things are going to need to go in order for restoration to happen. But Second Peter 3, he says that day, the day of judgment, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's the promise, a new creation where righteousness dwells, where things are as they should be. And the way in to that, the way into that promise is faith in Jesus. Sins wiped out, 
times of refreshing, the promise of restoration. That's what comes through faith in Jesus, the author and source of life. And so that's the choice. Choose death or choose the author of life with refreshment and sins wiped out and restoration. But Peter goes even further. He says, just in case that doesn't convince you, let me give you this too. That not only uh, is this seem to be a better choice, but this choice is actually your heritage. Here's what he says in verses 22 to 26. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This uh, gets to a theme that we've talked about already, and it comes up often in the early chapters of Acts, where the disciples of Jesus speak to the Jewish crowds, and they say to them, this is what you've been expecting. This is what's been promised to you. This, this is what was, what was promised in the scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. It's what you see again and again in the gospels where so often you get this refrain of this happened to fulfill what such and such prophet said. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the expectations and promises of the Jewish people. Now, again, I'm not going to go into detail with what Peter said here. We did that a bit more in Acts 2. But I'll say now what I said then. That that those promises that are given to the Jewish people are promises because they also speak to the desires of the human heart more generally. That it's what, it's what humanity longs for. So here's one example of it. Peter talks about Moses and Moses' promise of, of another prophet like him. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Moses and the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They're going to the promised land. They come to Mount Sinai. And, and God invites Moses up for a, for a conference, a little, a little tete-a-tete. And, um, and he gives him the Ten Commandments, those two stone tablets. And, and, and what happens at Sinai is that Sinai becomes such a holy mountain because of God's presence that if any of the other Israelites even touch the mountain, they die. That's how big of a gap exists between a holy, almighty God and sinful humanity. You touch the mountain, you die. That's, that's the gap. And so Moses is a mediator. Moses is the one who can kind of bridge the gap and communicate God's word to the people and represent the people to God. This is what the priests do in the Old Testament. They are a mediator between God and the people because the people realize we can't, we can't do this. We can't, we can't come into the temple like this. We can't go into the Holy of Holies. That doesn't work. So, so Moses promises in Deuteronomy 18 that God's going to raise up someone else like him who will speak God's word and, and be this, this bridge builder. But human beings do this very imperfectly, right? Because we are still, we're still sinful. We can't bridge that gap. But Jesus can. 
The Bible talks about how Jesus is the great high priest, that he is both fully God and fully man, and that he brings us into the presence of God. He is that mediator. We, sinful, unworthy human beings, are welcomed into God's presence because of Jesus. Doesn't this speak to a longing of the human heart? That we want to be near to God. We want to know Him. We want to be in relationship with Him. But He's so other than us. He's so transcendent. He's so holy. How could we ever be in relationship with Him? That's where Jesus enters in and fulfills that longing and the promises of the Scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment. And so even though... And probably most of us are not ethnically Jewish, I think I can still say to us, Jesus is your heritage. He is the one that you have longed for. He is the fulfillment of the expectations of your heart. You maybe have sought fulfillment in all kinds of places, in all kinds of areas of life. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the one who can satisfy those desires. And so that's the choice before you. The choice before you is death, sin, evil, or the author of life, Jesus, who brings refreshment and restoration and release and who fulfills the longings of your heart. And the scriptures indicate that as generally speaking, as long as you have breath to breathe, that choice is before you. But here's the thing. You don't know when you'll breathe your last. This is something the old-time evangelist would often ask. It's maybe grown out of style. I'm I'm, going to bring it back, old school here. Do you know what would happen if today was your last? Do you have peace with God? What what decision have you made? Have you chosen death, which is a choice that echoes for eternity? Or have you chosen the author of life? Do you have assurance that your sins have been dealt with and that you are right with God? Because today is the day to make that choice. Today is the day to choose for Jesus and to receive what he has to give you and to have that assurance and to have that peace. And so here's what we're going to do. I'll invite the worship team up and then uh, Nate and Robert and Daniel and Carol, you guys can go to your spots. Um, we're we're going to sing a, a final song here. Um, about halfway, uh, halfway through the song, we're going to uh, take communion together. This, this practice... Where, where we, we recall and, and, and remember what Jesus has done for us to swap his life with ours. Uh, and so we do it with these um, packages where the bread tastes like cardboard, but that's what we do. So uh, there's, there's some over here, right there by the offering box. And so just during this first part of this, of this song, just want to invite you, if you don't have one of those, if you didn't, didn't get one of those on your way in, just come down and grab one of those. But I want to invite you to do something else. Uh, I want to invite you during this, during this final song, if you are wanting to make that choice, to receive that assurance and that peace in Christ, 
Robert and, and Nate and, and Daniel and Carol are on the sides, kind of by the walls, and they would love to pray with you, even during this, during this song. Just want to invite you to respond to this, to take that step, to make that decision, to ensure that you are right with God and to receive the refreshment and release that he has for you. And so I'm going to pray and then, and then invite you to come get communion, get, invite you to, to go and pray with one of those to, to make that choice as, as we sing. Jesus, I thank you for what you have done at the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for swapping your life for ours. And we thank you, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead, that you declared him to be Lord, and that you placed this choice before us, that we can choose death and sin, which is what we often do, or we can choose life. You've made it available to us. You are life, and you have given yourself for us. So may we not neglect that. May we not... May we not willfully live in death, but may we receive you and receive the gift of life that you want to give us. And I want to pray today, Lord, for those who are living in ways that lead to death, who are reveling in sin, that today would be the day of repentance. I pray for those who are weary and heavy burdened, that today would be the day of release. For those who are just dry, Lord, today would be the day of refreshment. For those who are broken, that this would be the day of restoration. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would move among us today. In Jesus' name, amen.